0: Welcome to the latest episode of Silver Screen Superheroes, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Daller. This month we are taking a look at both the theatrical and director's cuts of the 2003 Daredevil film, written and directed by Mark Stephen Johnson, and starring Ben Affleck, Jennifer Garner, and Michael Clark Duncan. This was originally released on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2003, after being postponed by about five weeks. If you look back at the history of superhero films, this followed Blade, the X-Men, and the first Spider-Man film. So 20th Century Fox had seen the potential box office power of a superhero film and added to the budget after production had started. Now, it took a long time to get this production off the ground. This is a passion project for Mark Steven Johnson. He has wanted to make a Daredevil movie, or had wanted to make a Daredevil movie, since the early 1990s. And he was hounding the Marvel offices to let him make that happen so badly in the 90s. At one point, they had taken out a restraining order against him to keep him out of there. And then when Aviarad took over the company and was trying to get things back on screen and back on track, that was his main goal, was to license these properties to movies and use that to feed people back into the comics. He learned about Mark Steven Johnson's passion for this project and his desire to do it, and he set up a meeting with him and worked with Fox, and things started to get off the ground. Things started to really take shape when Ben Affleck mentioned in an interview that Daredevil is one of the few heroes that he'd be willing to put on a costume for, because Daredevil is his favorite comic book character. And when Mark Steven Johnson heard that, Ben Affleck was a pretty big star at the time. He managed to get Affleck signed, and that was the final piece they needed to greenlight and get the movie going. So why was it so difficult for Mark Steven Johnson to make this happen? Well, if you look at his credits prior to this, he had Grumpy Old Men. That was his debut. He gets credit for creating the characters for Grumpy-er Old Men, but he didn't have any direct involvement. He wrote Big Bully. He wrote Simon Birch. He also worked on the 1998 Jack Frost film. Not the horror movie, just the horrible movie starring Michael Keaton and Kelly Preston. For more on that, I refer you to the How Did This Get Made podcast. They did a very good job on that. Now, Simon Birch, his prior work was his directorial debut. His writing debut was Grumpy Old Men, but he did not direct that one. And then after Jack Frost came Daredevil. This was followed by Ghost Rider, which we're not going to get to in this series. We're dealing with Elektra in November and The Incredibles in December before Silver Screen Superheroes wraps up to make space for Make Me Watch It coming up next year. But Mark Stephen Johnson's credits, they weren't guaranteed to bring things in. I mean, yes, Grumpy Old Man had exceeded a lot of expectations. Some of his other films did well enough, but none of them were the style of film that would convince people that he was the right fit for Daredevil. Daredevil has traditionally been Marvel's darkest hero, at least up until the 90s when Mark Stephen Johnson tried lobbying to work on the character. Now his career is still active. Following Daredevil and Ghost Rider, he directed When in Rome, Killing Season, and is currently filming Finding Steve McQueen. Now, when he brought in the cast, as I said, Ben Affleck was a big star at this point. This is coming after his debut in The Dark End of the Street as Tommy in 1981, obviously. He was basketball player number ten in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, not that he was known for that. Then he got into Days and Confused, Mall Rats, Chasing Amy. Phantoms, Armageddon, Shakespeare in Love, Dogma, Boiler Room, Reindeer Games, Bounce, Pearl Harbor, Jay and Silent Bob Stripe Back, Changing Lanes, and The Sum of All Fears, and then The Third Wheel was the movie that came out right before this. Gigli was released very shortly thereafter. So when this started, Ben Affleck was a known and proven quantity. Putting Ben Affleck in a movie would sell it. Now, I don't think he was quite the right fit for the role. Not perfect not terrible. I think he's actually pretty good in it. I think the problem is that at the time, he still looked a little too young and a little too clean to have been Matt Murdock at that point in his career. As we've seen by Batman v Superman, he could definitely have pulled it off today. Now, Jennifer Garner is a very talented actress who did a lot of her own work in terms of the stunts and the physicality. She ended up cutting herself and Causing little scrapes and scars on her arms, practicing with the size that she was using in this. She had been very physical on Alias, which was still in production at the time. And she was so into it that during one of the fighting scenes, she actually kicked Ben Affleck hard enough in the head that he blacked out briefly. And even though her career goes back to 1995, her first big role that really set her apart really was in Alias. And that's what she was known for. Now, again, that was a physical role so she could fit the part in the script, although she wasn't the first person that sprang to mind when I thought of Electra from the comics. Now, the Electra in this movie has a slightly different background and is a little more trimmed down, so she is a good fit for the Electra of the script, but the script has issues adapting Electra to the big screen. Now, Colin Farrell was brought in as Bullseye, and again, he was a pretty well-known quantity at the time, His acting debut was in 1995, but at this point, he'd already been in Ballet Kiss Angel, American Outlaws, Hearts War, Minority Report, Phone Booth, and The Recruit were all leading up to Daredevil, and his career has continued since then. He is actually originally from Dublin, Ireland, so this is the first time he didn't put on a fake accent for a film. They let him use his actual accent when they decided to make Bullseye Irish, which was not something established in the comics, that we actually deliberately know very little about Bullseye's background in the comic books. But Bullseye is actually fairly well represented aside from giving him a home country. And probably my pick for the best casting choice of the film is Michael Clark Duncan as the Kingpin. He definitely had the physical stature and in fact had to gain 40 pounds on top of the 290 he started at when he was cast, in order to play the role of the kingpin, who was famous for being so physically imposing. He'd also been in Armageddon, as well as Night of the Roxbury, Breakfast of Champions, Sister Sister, Green Mile, Cats and Dogs, Planet of the Apes, Scorpion King, and King of the Hill. Now, while Michael Clark Duncan was talented, his size did somewhat limit his choices, because that just has to be a part of the character he plays. He was so tall and large compared to everybody else that, you know, they couldn't treat it as just another guy. Whoever he played, that had to be a part of the character. Now, unfortunately, there was a lot of flack, especially online, for changing the race. But if you take the images out and just read the dialogue, I can't think of a single instance where the race of the kingpin matters in the comics. But virtually every appearance makes mention of the fact that he is so massive and so muscular that that's just where he comes in. I have no problems with it. As I said, I think he was the best casting choice of the film. A close runner up to that. Is John Favreau as Foggy Nelson. He'd previously been Eric the Clown, who put out a fire with his giant shoes in Seinfeld. He was in Chicago Hope. He was Pete Becker in six episodes of Friends. He was in Dilbert in The Sopranos, as himself. He was in Buzz Lightyear of Star Command as Crumford Lorak, and all of that led into his role in Daredevil. He's probably best known to superhero fans now as the co writer and director. Of the first two Iron Man films, where he plays Happy Hogan on screen as well. Now, the origin story is told in flashback. Young Matt is played by Scott Terra, who is still working today. Most recent job is in 2010, but I haven't found anything that says he's deliberately chosen not to continue working. His debut was in Spin City in 1997. As child actors go, he actually did quite well, especially for a role this physical. But following Daredevil, he was in Sol Goody, Dickie Roberts, former child star notes from the underbelly, and then there was a three-year gap before doing the big C. That gap started when he was 23, so we haven't seen him since. He'd be 30 now. Like I said, I haven't seen anything that says he's officially retired. For all I know, he's working on stage, or maybe he went to college and pursued a different career. Now, Ellen Pompeo is barely in the theatrical cut as Karen Page, following appearances in Catch Me If You Can, Get Real, Law & Order, and subsequent appearances as Dr. Meredith Grey in 276 episodes of Grey's Anatomy. So, sounds like kind of a key role in that series. Haven't seen it, but if it's Grey's Anatomy, Grey's the last name of her character and she's been in 276 episodes? I'm betting she's featured prominently in that one. Whereas in this theatrical cut, she's got maybe 30 seconds of screen time. That's probably doubled or tripled when you look at the director's cut. Now, Joe Pantoliano was coming in following The Fugitive, The Matrix, and Memento so it was almost a step down for him to be in a part this small as Ben Urich. Now, Leland Orser, who's known for the Taken movies as well as Seven and Independence Day, plays Wesley Owen Welch, who's the Kingpin's lackey that actually plays a very fundamental role in the director's cut, which was just chopped out for the theatrical cut, leaving behind a plot hole. Now, Eric Avari is in here. I've always known and recognized him since the days of you know, Stargate, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Independence Day, and Lois and Clark, where he was getting regular guest starring work in pretty much everything I was watching. He was also in Star Trek The Next Generation, SeaQuest, Bird as She Wrote, Babylon 5, Roseanne. He's one of those guys that's easy to recognize because he's been in just about everything. Here he plays Nicholas Nachios, Electra's father. He is still working today, 147 credits, with a Couple of projects that are completed are in post-production. I play Matt's father. We've got David Keith. He's Jack Murdoch here. He's got another 116 credits to his name, best known for Men of Honor U571 Behind Enemy Lines and an Officer and a Gentleman. He plays Badland Jack fairly well. Now we've got some cameos. On the one hand, there's your sort of required Stan Lee cameo. In this case, he plays an old man that Matt prevents from crossing the street, which is an homage to the original origin of Daredevil. In which Matt Murdock sees an old man crossing the street. The man is blind, doesn't know that there's a truck coming after him. Matt runs out into the street and saves the man from the truck while getting doused in radioactive chemicals that gives him his powers. That's one of the changes for this film that really rubbed me the wrong way because one of the aspects of Daredevil that I love so much from the comics, where he is my favorite comic book character, is that he was already a hero and that's why he got his powers. He didn't get his powers and then choose to become a hero. He was already out there running into the street, where here it's just a straight-up accident. But Stanley is only one of the creators from the comics that came in. We also have Kevin Smith in a cameo as the coroner. Now, he wrote the eight-issue Guardian Devil story arc that relaunched the series just a few years before this came out. He was followed by David Mack, Brian Michael Bendis, Bendis' first arc was four issues, then Bob Gale stepped in, Bob Gale's six issues ended, and Brian Michael Bendis came back full-time. If Brian Michael Bendis sounds familiar, that's because Brian Michael Bendis, Gene Colan, Jack Kirby, and a number of the other people who worked on Daredevil as writers or pencilers were name-checked during the course of this film. In fact, I am a little irritated by the fact that one of Daredevil's best writers who had one of the longest runs on the character up to that date, and Senti, was pretty much the only one who didn't get referenced. And as one of the first really successful female writers at Marvel, it, to me, felt like giving her a little bit of the short shrift when people who had much shorter and less influential runs did get name checked. Now, another cameo that actually appears in the film as Man with Pen in Head is Frank Miller. He is arguably the most influential Daredevil writer of all time. He also penciled out a number of issues, but it's his work that first introduced Elektra and killed her in a manner fairly similar to what we see on screen. Now, whether or not you saw Coolio on screen depends on the version that you saw. When 20th Century Fox was trying to get this out, they also wanted to hit a specific runtime and keep the rating down from R into the PG-13 range to get a lot more box office sales, get more screenings in. So there was a massive tug of war between writer-director Mark Steven Johnson and the Fox studio in terms of what the final cut should be like. Now, Coolio is in here as a suspect that Matt Murdock and Foggy Nelson are defending in court. He only appears in the director's cut because the studio cut that entire plot line out of the film, which required rearranging some scenes to change the context. They also demanded the introduction of the love scene that we see between Matt Murdock and Electra, which really undermines his character arc. At the beginning of this film, Daredevil is broken. He's sort of lost his drive. He's going through the motions, but he's not really working for justice. He's using fatal tactics. He's threatening people in court. He's not as poised in the courtroom as he has been throughout the comic history, and it's meeting a lecture that causes him to be a better person and wake up and get his life back on track in the director's cut when they're on a rooftop and he hears people crying for help. He leaves Electra behind to go help those people who need help, as opposed to earlier in the film when he was luring himself into a sanctuary deprivation tank to sleep, where he just lets the crimes happen and doesn't go back to stop it. So we see his growth in his choice to leave Electra behind and be selfless rather than selfish, because, I mean, let's face it, he's a heterosexual male and she's Jennifer Garner and looking to see more of him. Not an easy offer to say no to, and yet he did. To serve the greater good. In the director's cut, anyway, in the theatrical cut, they do have a love scene instead, which undermines that growth, and he's not becoming the hero that he should be. The director's cut also includes a lot more interaction between Ben Urich, Matt, and Foggy, and in terms of what he's investigating with the Kingpin story and the Daredevil story, and how he puts together what he puts together, as well as tipping off Matt to some things that are going on. We see more of the limitations of Matt's abilities as he encounters a witness who's got a pacemaker. So Matt's ability to hear with incredible accuracy and hear the, the slightest sounds doesn't help him listen for that lie detector the heart skipping a beat because that man's heartbeat isn't tied to his emotional state, which was also taken from the Frank Miller run. A lot of this came from the Frank Miller run and the David Mack run is where the playground fight between Matt and one of his girlfriends was, although it was in a very different context in which the girlfriend didn't realize that Matt Murdock was Daredevil and she was genuinely trying to kill him. As I said, this is a passion project, but some of it seemed to be that they were taking Mark Stephen Johnson's favorite images from the comics and stringing them together. So some of the emotional core wasn't there. When Elektra gets finally killed by Bullseye, it's a remake or a shot of that comic book panel, which worked very well in the comic where it was basically a full-page splash in a tall, skinny medium, the way it was posed filled the line of sight. The way it was done in the film here, that to get that same pose, it's still a tall and skinny aspect ratio for the active images, which means there's a lot of screen to both sides that's not used, and they had to pull the camera back, which undermines the emotional bond between the audience and the characters. So what should be the most heart-wrenching part of the movie gets undercut by positioning the camera to perfectly reproduce that shot. Now, this is one of the scenes that is better in the director's cut. We see more pain and anguish and torment in Electra in the director's cut than we did in the theatrical. The fight is more brutal. At the end of the day, I can't think of a single aspect of the film that was superior in the theatrical cut to the director's cut. The theatrical cut, frankly, isn't very good. The director's cut is well worth watching. So if you've only seen the theatrical cut, or if you've never seen the film and want to, check out the director's cut. Although it's a little bit off topic, it's not the movie, but frankly, this movie is not as good as the Netflix Daredevil series. The first season of Netflix Daredevil is just phenomenal as long as you go in expecting something to be structured like a 12 hour movie rather than 13 episodes of TV. Now, I said earlier that Ben Affleck didn't really convince me that he was his Daredevil. I should have mentioned then that I need to give him credit where credit is due. When they first started filming, he saw the dailies and realized he wasn't playing a blind man convincingly. He was still reacting to things that could only be part of his reaction if he could see. So the contact lenses that Ben Affleck has in place when his eyes are visible were thick enough that they actually blinded him at his request, and he wore those lenses whether you could see his eyes or not. So anytime he's playing Matt Murdock and is trying to act like a blind man, the actor made sure that he actually had himself blinded. So ultimately, IMDb voters rated this at 5.3 out of 10, so kind of below average, very much middle of the road kind of stuff. That said, opening weekend in the USA only, it brought in $45 million with a $78 million budget. The final domestic gross was about $102 million. It was $102,543,520, which is a little over double the opening weekend and more than the original budget. The worldwide box office is $179,179,718. So it did make money in theaters and on video, especially with the director's cut. It spun off Electra, which we'll be watching next month, and it would have had a sequel, except Ben Affleck found the costume so uncomfortable, plus everything he was going through in his personal life with G. Lee between Jennifer Garner and J. Lo and everything that was happening there, he chose not to return. So Fox kept trying to reboot it, but by the time they realized that their period of time to make use of the license was almost up and having, having things in production, they were unable to find a writer and director who was willing to step in and produce a Daredevil movie within that short time frame. So even though they tried to keep the rights, they did lapse because they did not produce something with the Daredevil franchise for the stated period of time. So seven years after Electra came out, the rights reverted back to Marvel. And that is how Daredevil landed at Netflix and is now building towards the Defenders. In any event, that's everything that we have to say about Daredevil. So as we said, next month, we are looking at the Daredevil spinoff film, Electra, starring Jennifer Garner reprising her role. In the meantime, feel free to rate this and any of the shows you listen to on iTunes and Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you use. It really does help the shows get noticed. Share links with people who you feel may enjoy it and send any and all feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.